So, Oliver, who are we canceling today? Um, the Substack Bros, definitely. <laughs> I'm not touching that one with a 10-foot pole. You are on your own. You know, I think the cancel daddy's got it. I'm just going to take him down. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Burns. And I'm Oliver Ash Klein. You're listening to Cancel Me Daddy. The show where we take a closer look at all of the panic round cancel culture. With thoughtful analysis. And verbal shit posting. Um, so one big milestone since our last episode is that we now have 50 patrons. It's really amazing. Every time a new episode comes out, like I get all of the email notifications on my phone and I just get happier and happier every time a new one hits. It's so overwhelming. <laughs> People actually like us. Can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can believe that like us but that people want to support us and support the work we're doing is like a whole different like level of like that I can't really quite wrap my head around yeah yeah I heard from a lot of people the last couple of weeks about you know every time I'd send like an unrelated dm for like work or just like socially people would respond back oh it's nice to hear from you I love your podcast and I'm like wow okay I guess people are actually listening yeah it's totally hard to judge when like I don't know I'm recording in my closet and we're like just talking to each other and like you know in our own little own little silos um so it's really incredible and affirming to just like see everyone lifting up and supporting the show and shameless plug time Yeah, shameless plug, um, review us on Apple Podcasts. We might read your nice review on this show. We got one recently from Badger in DC. Uh, It said, what a great podcast that takes on the cancel culture grift. Caitlin and Oliver Ash are wonderful and entertaining hosts. This podcast is a must listen. You know, reviews on Apple really help more than you might think. Also quote tweets, I'm a big fan of because then I can retweet it and then I don't have to keep retweeting my own tweet over and over again. (laughs) And it's just really nice to see, like, I don't know, it's very affirming and just brings me so much joy to see people talking about the show. So so on that note, um, do you want to let people know what we're going to be covering in our show today, Caitlin? Yeah, so we're going to talk about the Teen Vogue thing. Honestly, a controversy around Alexia McCammon stepping away from her appointment as editor-in-chief at Teen Vogue. I think this hits on a very familiar theme if you've been listening to our earlier episodes. Um, It's right in our wheelhouse. And then I'm going to delve into the Substack discourse with a very special guest, the one and only Jude Ellison S. Doyle, who's an incredibly talented author Uh, in the middle of all of that, who graciously took the time to come on our show. Okay, let's get to it. So this story about Teen Vogue has really blown up. It's like I'm seeing it everywhere. It is the center, I think, of a lot of discussions about cancel culture and how things have gone too far, X, Y, Z. And yeah, I think that, you know, for listeners who haven't been following along, we probably want to just like give a quick overview. Yeah, so what happened was is Condé Nast, who owns Teen Vogue and several other sort of major magazine brands, hired Axios reporter Alexi McCammond to be their editor-in-chief. And shortly after her appointment was announced, there were several tweets from 10 years ago that surfaced in which she was racist toward Asian people. 
Mm-hmm. Um, again, we don't really want to read the actual content of the tweets, I think, on the show, but they're readily available to anybody who wants to like Google it. She has since apologized several times for it. And after a huge dust up and an outcry on the internet and internally from Teen Vogue staffers, um, ultimately she decided to step down from her new role. So this has brought up a lot of, I think, complicated questions about how somebody's social media history should impact on their employment. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually really excited to talk about this because I think we can have a really nuanced conversation, both about this situation and several others that have popped up recently along these same lines. Yeah, I think there is a lot to unpack here. Yeah. So I think I'll start with my initial thought, and that is, in general, I don't think teenage tweets should be that big of a deal. Now, let me put some qualifiers on that. (laughs) If the person is still in their early 20s, obviously teenage tweets are more recent than others, but Alexia McCammond is 27 years old. So we're talking about tweets from a decade ago. Her work has always been really professional. I think well done. I think she's a good journalist. But I think in this particular instance, taking over what is possibly the largest teenage magazine brand in the world, Mm -hmm. I think adds a complicator to this that a lot of people are kind of ignoring, right? Yeah, part of their thing is you should take teenagers seriously, right? They should take teenagers seriously. They're very committed to like teaching teenagers social justice. And I think it would be a little bit hypocritical to have somebody like running the magazine who has like a history of racist tweets as a teenager. Like if there's one publication that can't have that in their editor in chief, it's probably Teen Vogue, right? So I do think that that is complicated. I think if she was going for a job like a political editor at Politico, I don't necessarily think that those tweets should cost her a job on their own, if that makes sense. Because I think there's a difference between Politico and Teen Vogue. Yeah, and I think that also it wouldn't cost her her job at Politico. I imagine like the culture there and kind of what the kind of reporting they do and their values, like, I don't think they would really care. Right. Even her job at Axios is like, it's just fundamentally different than what she was walking into at Teen Vogue. Now, I should also say that I am a Teen Vogue contributor. I have written for Teen Vogue. I consider many of their editors who protested, like, at least colleagues of mine, and several of them I would call f- friends. Um, so I just want to be upfront about my own priors coming into this. There were also reports that there were photos of her in, like, a Native American costume at a, what was it, a Halloween party? And I heard reports about homophobic tweets, but I didn't actually see what they were. So this wasn't just, like, one or two tweets from 10 years ago. There was, like, a lot that went into this. Yeah, and I think the other thing with Teen Vogue is it's one of the most, like, overtly, like, leftist progressive publications. Uh, And I think that they need someone who is really committed and vocally supportive of those values. Anything that raises questions about that should be taken seriously. And I think that, you know, an apology is great. You know, I think these were 10 years ago. People grow and they learn. But has there been really active vocal commitment 
to kind of the opposite, to these leftist values, to these values that Teen Vogue is really pushing in the editorial direction they're going. And that Mm -hmm. Teen Vogue and the space that it occupies in media has space for and deserves a really visionary leader who's really pushing at the forefront of all of these things. And I don't think... Alexi is that leader. And I also think that I think it's alarming she didn't have a lot of experience leading a team or leading a publication. I don't think if I'm remembering correctly, she had any. And I think that that's a really core qualification for this role outside of all of the tweets. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, she also has ties to the administration through who she's dating, which I think would understandably, if I were a staffer at Teen Vogue, raise questions about how committed she is to kind of some of the values that Teen Vogue is pushing. Not that the people we date necessarily reflect us in that way, but that would raise a question for me. So what Oliver is referring to is there was a story, I think it was in February, about how Alexi had started dating um, a White House communications person who I think has since left the job over... A different controversy, which I don't want to get into <laughs> on here. But yes, she does have very close ties to the administration. And Teen Vogue is a publication that I think does a very good job of holding the administration accountable from the left, which is a rarity in media these days, I think. But I do want to respond a little bit to the lack of management and editorial experience. It's mm-hmm. actually not that unusual for journalists and writers to make the jump to editor-in-chief. If you look at like Ben Smith, when he was appointed at BuzzFeed, he had no editorial or management experience. Or like uh, David Remnick, like there's a long line of like white cis dudes Mm. who have made that jump. So I want to be careful leaning too hard on that talking point. Mm. I think it's a fair one. But also I don't want to create a double standard where we're, you know, letting white men do these things and not giving that same benefit of the doubt to a Black woman journalist, right? Absolutely. While I agree that it is alarming that there was like, especially no management experience, because I think the editor-in-chief role is very different from just a reporter position. Yeah, I do want to be careful leaning too hard into that, because I think there have been journalists who have gone on to be very good editor-in-chiefs. Mm-hmm. I think Ben Smith who I often disagree with, who I criticize sometimes, is an example of somebody who you know did a pretty decent job at editor-in-chief in a lot of respects, despite not having management experience before that. So I do want to be careful going there. But to me, it, it all comes back to if there's one publication out there that should be judging candidates for jobs based on teenage tweets. I think it's Teen Vogue. I agree with that. You know, I think that there's a really important discussion to be had about how what some people would describe as cancel culture disproportionately targets and affects people of color, trans people, you know, other people who are marginalized. And I think that that's a really important point that we can't completely ignore in all of this. Um, And I do think, right, like what Alexi is being held accountable for is something that a lot of white men have done and not be held accountable for. And I think that I would be harping a lot harder on that and much more concerned about that Mm -hmm. if it was any other publication. Yes. 
I think that people who are pointing that out, I think that's a really fair point. Um, and I definitely hold a lot of space for that. I also think that, you know, Teen Vogue is, you know, a teenage publication. We're in a time with really visible anti-Asian American sentiment and backlash in our culture. And for this publication that centers teenage voices and experiences mm-hmm. and also social justice and anti-racism and leftist politics, you know, to appoint someone with a history of writing tweets that are racist against Asian Americans, I think that that doesn't align with what the publication stands for. Mm -hmm. I I understand how this unfolded, and I think that it makes sense. And I think Alexi, you know, I don't know exactly, you know, what went on behind the scenes, but publicly, Alexi has decided to step away. um, And it's being framed as though this is Alexi's decision. And Mm -hmm. I think Alexi is going to be able to get a really good job, right? Like, I think that this isn't the right fit, but she has an incredible reporting experience. She has, you know, overall a good reputation. I don't think that this is going to be the kind of thing where, like, she's not able to get a job. She has to leave journalism, all of that. I think that this just isn't the right fit. Yeah. So, you know, several of my Asian friends did express to me that her tweets were very hurtful. So I definitely don't want to, like, dismiss that. But also, I do think that she's showing genuine remorse. I mean, anytime you lose your job over something and you're a thoughtful person, it kind of sparks self-reflection. And there's nothing in Alexi's history to suggest to me that she wouldn't take this up as an opportunity to sort of work on herself, which I think is what everybody kind of hopes for. And if she does that work, yeah, I, I think that she still has a very bright career ahead of her despite losing out on this. Also, you know, we're in this moment you mentioned earlier of anti-Asian hate, especially in the wake of of the coronavirus and the racism that it sparked. I'm not necessarily sure that she would have stepped down if not for the the shootings in Atlanta that happened recently. Mm. And I think that's forcing a lot of places to sort of confront what they had previously condoned. I did want to sort of bring up a couple of other instances of people losing their job over tweets that have happened in the very recent past. I know, you know, we talked about the New York Times freelance editor who, you know, lost her contract because of like an inauguration day tweet, right? So this is like familiar territory for the show, but I wanted to point our listeners to the San Francisco school board last Thursday voted five to two to strip one of their fellow board members, Allison Collins, of her title as vice president and all of her committee assignments. Um, after a vote of no confidence. And that was over racist tweets about Asian Americans. There were some 2016 tweets of hers that were uncovered of her targeting Asian Americans, complaining about what she felt were lack of efforts by Asian Americans to combat racism. And the tweets are really bad. We're not going to we're not going to read them or characterize them more than that, but they are horrifically racist. There's an article in the San Francisco Examiner from last Thursday that I think broke down sort of the gist of it. And you know, I think in that case, that's 2016, we're talking about an older adult. That's much more recent than 10 years ago, and I think there's a real difference between school board in a major city and like editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, right? It just goes to show you that like these situations are never cut and dry, right? Like I don't think there are people going around saying you made a bad tweet, therefore you should never be employed again. It's always situational, but like 
the San Francisco school district has a lot of Asian American students and how are they supposed to trust a school board member mm-hmm. that, you know, made awful statements about their community five years ago, right? So there's always a context behind these that I think it's very lazy to boil down to just cancel culture over tweets, right? Like people who think that tweets should never matter. First of all, they don't really believe it themselves. Um, and secondly, like you can't divorce social media from the rest of somebody's career or personality because I think a lot of times social media actually can be really revealing mm-hmm. of somebody's sort of true thoughts or at least their judgment right because like mm-hmm. there are things that I think of that I think oh that would be a hilarious tweet and then I think about them for another like 20 seconds and I'm like wait a second no that would be really problematic and I don't think everybody does that <laughs> right um, but in this case like it's somebody who who very clearly had an issue with a an entire community and decided to voice that. I think those types of incidences can be really revealing. Yeah, and I think with a school board member who has power over so many young people's lives, and especially so many young people from the community mm-hmm. that they're being racist against, uh, is just totally unacceptable. And this isn't like, yeah. oh, 20 years ago, you know, this person said this thing. And I think, look, even even if it was 20 years ago, right? Or even with Alexi, like the reality is that if you say something that hurts people, that's bigoted, that's harmful to people, that's something you have to live with the consequences of. I, I think that even if you have learned and you've grown and you've kind of shifted your perspective and become more aware of the world and the ways that ideas that you had were harmful and bad, like some people aren't going to forgive you and you have to live with yeah. that. And I think that that, you know, that doesn't mean consequences forever without boundaries you never have a job absolutely that's not what that means but that does mean that like you know you have to live with the consequences of your actions i should also note that collins is also black like uh, mcammond and after the vote of no confidence the the school board also put out a statement condemning the anti-black racism that the story had generated towards Collins. So again, these are like multi-layered, often horrific circumstances that pop up around this. But I also, if I could go, do we have time to get into a third recent example? Um, We don't, but the one that you want to get into, I think is really important to talk about. So let's do it. We'll make time. Okay. So the third one, and this just happened like the day before we were recording this, so it's still pretty fresh, but USA Today reporter Hamil Javeri lost her job actually over tweets following the Boulder, Colorado shooting. In the media aftermath of the shooting, Javeri tweeted that these shooters are always white men. Um, It turns out the shooter was not necessarily a white man in this case. And as a result, like the usual far-right, alt-right, Twitter goon squad descended on her account. You know, they ran their usual playbook where they brigaded, you know, her account. They bombarded USA Today with complaints and demands that she be fired. And USA Today gave the mob they wanted and got rid of her despite a very long record of, you know, really good and strong work for them. I think this is more of an, an example of cancel culture than either of the other two. Javeri wrote a very open and honest piece 
about her time at, at USA Today and some of the internal struggles that she had with with other editors. And we see this happen over and over and over again. If the right decides they don't like somebody, they have a really high success rate in just getting rid of them, right? And even late last week, you had, you know, some of the worst people in the alt-right, I don't want to say their names and give them airtime on our show, um, continuing to, you know, give her a call, hard time calling her, you know, like a bigot or a racist or whatever. Yeah, I think that, you know, she's apologized for her tweet and says she shouldn't have tweeted it. I think that, you know, the place it was coming from it was speaking out against white supremacy mm-hmm. and looking at a pattern that she had seen. Um, and, you know, she's someone who has done a lot of reporting and has an expertise around race and racism. And I think that this is such a clearly like bad faith situation where a publication didn't support their reporter and just like folded to the like white supremacist mob and fired her. Uh, And it's really alarming and disappointing. Yeah. I was going to say, it's the same people doing the same thing over and over and over again, and they know that it works. Right. And to me, this like kind of reflects like, you know, how Mm -hmm. Gamergate unfolded or, you know, things like that, where someone is, is speaking out about, you know, systems and structures of oppression, right? And gets bombarded with hate and gets flagged to their employers till they get fired. Yeah, to me, this is the far right mob just like hyper fixating on someone and kind of like ruining their life, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm sure that J- Javeri is like a really incredible reporter and I think it is going to be okay. But like, Losing your job like that in that way is like really hard and really shitty. And I'm really disappointed in USA Today and their lack of leadership and integrity in this decision. Yeah. And I think that there's like a key distinction here. If you look at the amount of nuance that we just had in our Teen Vogue, you know, discussion where we were talking about how it's a difficult situation, right? And there's varying factors. Like this is all stuff that we're weighing as we're watching all of this unfold. And the right just doesn't do that. They find a target. They don't like it. They don't like that person. And they just set out to destroy it. And I think that the left is looking for genuine accountability. And I don't know anybody on the left that doesn't want Alexia McCammond to like grow out of all of this, right? People on, on the right don't want Javeri to ever be employed again and will likely try to make that happen. So I think there's a, a disingenuineness to when the right does this versus the left. And I think it's okay to say that. Like, I don't think this is a both sides type of deal. I think. I think the mm-hmm. right is trying to use the same playbook as the left without going after any of the same goals. Like they're not making demands for accountability. They just want to see somebody get fired for the lulls. And like they are not analyzing a situation for complicating factors. It's we don't like this person. This person doesn't like our racism. We're going to destroy this person. So I, I think there's a huge difference between the two. So for our second conversation today, I'm going to be delving into some of the conversations that are happening around Substack and how the platform funds and supports anti-trans hate. 
with a very special guest. And I'm actually going to take a step back on this one. Uh, This is discourse that I've purposely not tried to put myself in the middle of for various reasons that I don't want to get into, but I trust that Oliver is going to nail it. And I'm really proud of you, Caitlin, for taking care of yourself and stepping away from this one and just doing what you need to do. You know, honestly, this is a topic that we wouldn't be doing our job as a podcast on cancel culture if we didn't talk about it. So I don't believe in avoiding the conversations that need to be had on this show. But sometimes there's stuff that I just don't want to get into. Yay for having healthy (laughs) boundaries. We love to see it. Um, And if you've been following the conversation closely, you'll know that Caitlin's name has come up quite a bit, even though she's been, like she said, really staying out of it. And so pretty much everyone trans who's involved or speaking up about this is facing like a lot of harassment. It's really gross. Yeah, that's why I'm letting Oliver take the reins on this one. But I'll definitely be back after the segment. Yeah, and I'm really excited for this segment because I'm going to get to sit down with the one and only Jude Ellison S. Doyle, who is an incredibly talented writer and columnist. He's the author of several books that are definitely worth your time including Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, Monstrosity, Patriarchy, and the Fear of Female Power, and Trainwreck, The Women We Love to Hate, Mock, and Fear, and Why. You know, Jude's amazing work isn't what is bringing them onto the show for this segment. Uh, They've unfortunately found themselves in the midst of the latest online dumpster fire. It's been a lot to watch unfold. Uh, Jude is in the middle of it. Uh, Jude wrote a newsletter that was speaking up about how Substack is funding anti-trans writers with major deals to write on the newsletter platform and how the money that they were using to fund those writers uh, they got from exploiting queer and trans labor. Uh, and the whole thing just really it blew up. It became this major topic on the internet that a lot of people have been talking about and yelling about. And so Judah's going through it right now. And I am so appreciative of uh, him taking the time to sit down with me and to have the conversation you're about to hear. So before we get started, I just want to say Jude is being such a trooper right now. We are having (laughs) outrageous technical difficulties around recording this interview, which makes me think that maybe someone's trying to sabotage this or doesn't want this conversation to happen because I am an audio professional and have never, (laughs) never had issues like this. It's pretty much like somebody put a hex on this conversation like we should check to see if glenn greenwald has magic powers because if so we are screwed (laughs) oh well hopefully we have gotten through all of our technical difficulties and it's all down here because jesus christ So I want to start out our conversation by just kind of reorienting people and bringing folks up to speed who maybe haven't been deep in this like you have, Jude. Right. And I think that, you know, kind of the top level analysis, right, is that Substack is using money that they've gotten from queer and trans and other marginalized writers to platform bigots and platform anti-trans writers and give them money to write for the platform. And so to kind of understand this, I think we need to understand, obviously, Substack's economic model, which I believe is it's a newsletter platform. And so basically 
they ask people to write newsletters and people who subscribe to those newsletters can pay for them and they just take a little bit off the top. Is that your understanding? Right. Um, the basic Substack model is that they allow you to either import subscribers from somewhere else. I had a tiny letter or they allow you to start a subscriber base from scratch. They don't charge a flat fee like some other newsletter services do, but they take 10% off the top. This is complicated by the fact that their financial model is really shrouded in secrecy in terms of what money goes where. Mm. But I joined the platform very, very soon after it was first founded. I think it's been around since about 2017. I got an email in maybe January or February of 2018. And that communication was definitely framed as a recruiting communication. They wanted my specific writing. They wanted me to move the tiny little newsletter I had over to their platform. And they recruited me by mentioning the names of Nicole Cliffy, Daniel Lavery, and Helena Fitzgerald. That was their sort of framing, that your peers, the people you respect, they're already on here. And by the way, if you post four times a week, you might even almost make as much as you would make at a job. And that didn't really appeal to me. I did not think I was going to make millions on Substack, but I liked writing in a more informal bloggy way. And I needed a side hustle because every freelancer is always waiting for their jobs to disappear on them. Now, three years later, Substack has rebranded itself around a really specific kind of content. And that content is miles away from what I was pitched. They have this group of already very famous, very white, very cisgender, mostly men who have been able to frame themselves as free speech warriors who are being held back by the unfair constriction of traditional media. And they're using Substack to say the things no one else would allow them to say. And the thing that it turns out they weren't allowed to say at their previous jobs was that they don't like trans people. Every single one of them. That's the big, bold, edgy opinion they need to come busting through the door with. And that disturbs me because even though Substack maintains that my 10% doesn't go directly into the pocket of these guys, we know that they are now writing substantial advances to at least some of them. And the smaller advance that I've heard mentioned is $135,000 if you're on what they now the call The smaller Substack. one? That's the smaller one of a Substack Pro Advance. There are grants that are like a middle-class income. Like maybe you'd get a $60,000 grant. It's not really transparent who's getting those either. But if you're on Substack Pro, someone who was run off Twitter for harassing too many women was offered $135,000. And someone who actually still does have a platform and a shred of professional credibility was offered $250,000. That's the range of money we're talking about. And a company that has that much money to throw around got it from me working my ass off for a nickel and me agreeing to use my reputation to build their platform. And that's what we've got. We've got a bunch of marginalized writers at the bottom scraping up bits of change. They were recruited no different to the paid writers. Substack has always had an editorial policy from the very first, and it's important to be clear on that. They're also making decisions about who deserves to be paid and who doesn't. And 
it does appear that that bold, brave, free speech warrior branding entails making a lot of money off the folks at the bottom of the food chain in order to pay the people up top who are arguing against gender marginalized people's rights. And that disturbs me as a business model. That seems like brutally exploitative in ways that I'm just not okay signing on to. Absolutely. So I I had been kind of keeping up with all of the Twitter conversation around this, but I hadn't actually delved into your newsletter until the other day. And when I was reading it, I was just kind of struck by how kind of innocuous it was. Like it wasn't, you were like laying out these things that were really alarming, but it, it wasn't, you know, everyone's like lost their goddamn minds about this post that you've written. And it just seemed, no, you were just kind of like laying out what was going on like you just did to me. And I'm wondering, you know, a, a lot of the response to kind of you laying this out and talking about your concern around this has been framed as cancel culture and you're trying to censor people and things like that. And, you know, to me, that seems like such a disingenuous framing of what's going on. But I'm wondering, you know, what you think about that and how that kind of plays into this larger conversation that we're having around cancel culture. Right. I honestly don't know how it became a story about me. I think there was a cloud of Substack resentment building. There were already people in the labor left trying to talk about how big these advances were. And, you know, uh, somebody was going to break the dam and it just happened to be me because I wrote an unpaywalled post laying it out. Um, to frame it as cancel culture, when I was just frankly trying to be honest about how I make my money and whether I want my readers and particularly my trans readers to be signing on for something that I think may fund some pretty nefarious stuff. It's a distraction from a conversation that's been going on around tech platforms for years and years now, which is that if you provide these platforms and particularly if you provide a funding mechanism, you have a responsibility to do real content moderation. And I think that's what I asked for. It's not that I want anyone in particular, you know, canceled and driven to the ends of the earth, clutching their tattered rags to their chest. I want that for some people. But you know, I can I can do that on my on my own time. <laughs> um, but it's that framing it as a cancel culture debate allows people to present themselves as victims in a debate that is primarily about them being paid very, very much to do very, very little responsible real work as journalists. If you're getting $135,000 a year to write about who pisses you off on Twitter, that's something that people should think about. You know, that's something that people should know before they decide to pay the corporation that's giving you that platform. I don't think that cancel culture is the same as understanding how the internet actually works. And this is something we've seen over and over and over is that when content platforms frame themselves as havens for free speech, and they value that abstract ideal of free speech, which I don't think is an ideal. I think it's a cost-cutting measure. I think it's you deciding that you don't have room in your budget for a content moderation team. That allows bigots, sometimes very dangerous extremist bigots, to amass huge audiences and create 
huge amounts of damage. It should never have gotten to the point that Tim Giannet, Baked Alaska, had over 100,000 Twitter followers. Milo Yiannopoulos should not have been able to direct freeform harassment campaigns that ultimately ended up solidifying a new fascist movement in this country. He was mm-hmm. able to do that because... A, Milo, like many people, started largely by going in on gender marginalized people and on trans people. And B, it was very, very hard to report him because he drove engagement, he drove clicks, he earned money. Substack has a particular responsibility now in that there's maybe only one guy on there who's at a Milo level right now, if I can say his name, Glenn. Mm-hmm. That's the one where even some people who are just professionally transphobic for a living will back away from Glinner because he specifically and only exists online to hate and harass trans women. But Glinner also claims that he makes his living off of Substack. That is now his primary income. And once that dog whistle comes out, I hate people for a living. I'm a bigot for a living. And this place is going to let me do it you know that if he's the most hateful person on that platform, he won't be there for long. It's really hard to disentangle all the threads of this conversation because you also have the more polite transphobia of the Substack bros, the people who know how to parse it out legalistically and frame any objection to their frequently debunked and often hateful ideas as, I'm being canceled, I'm being suppressed, nobody wants me to ask questions, nobody wants free speech. But that's A, your responsibility as a writer to inform and educate the public. If you're routinely abusing that responsibility to promote hatred of marginalized groups, yeah, you need an editor or a content moderator or someone to reel you in. But having a free-for-all, we have seen it over and over and over again, earns you a lot of money real fast, but it does that at the cost of lasting damage to the people, to the public, to our political life. If you make your space a safe home for trans people and extremist transphobes and hate groups, sooner or later, the only people on there are going to be the hate groups. Totally. Um, You were just talking about how, you know, there's the less overtly, obviously uh, hateful people on the platform that are still spreading anti-trans misinformation. And I wanted to talk about that because I do think that that is in some ways more nefarious, right? It's, it's hard to kind of see what's going on for, for some people. And you wrote a um, recent article on Medium that kind of referred to all of this that included, you know, how a lot of these writers are spreading turf rhetoric. And that really resonated with me because You know, when I first kind of saw some of that, you know, a few years ago, I kind of rolled my eyes and said, "Okay, this is bad, but it's not being published in these mainstream publication. It's a few like extremists, you know, just going on whatever. And then, like, I had a friend who started parroting some of that back to me. Mm. And it wasn't until then that I saw how precarious trans rights were in our country and how kind of the turf movement in the UK, you know, how, how precarious respect for our existence is in this country and how framing things around, oh, I'm just asking questions, I'm just being concerned, is a really nefarious way to slip transphobic ideas into folks who are more liberally minded. And so I'm I'm wondering how how you see this, how you're processing this, because this is something that I'm just really struggling with right now. Right. That's the thing is that framing transphobia as a controversial idea that the anti-trans hordes are out to cancel really 
is in and of itself a turf talking point. The idea that trans people are inherently crazy wackos who not only don't understand their own stories are out to somehow suppress information, you know, so that we can further the trans agenda, casting us as a scary, unreasonable, violent threat to these good, nice cis writers who are just raising questions. That is in and of itself deeply transphobic and meant to further structural transphobia by undermining trans voices and casting them as always already wrong every time they open their mouths, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing is, with many of these more respectable transphobes, their connections to the hate groups are not at all hard to find out. Mm -mm. They really aren't. It is a case with multiple journalists in this circle that they have published things and people have thought, well, this sounds a little bit like it's, you know, it sounds a little bit like these hate groups we're more familiar with. And we would find out that they had actually interviewed members of the hate groups and then scrubbed those affiliations off the interview, right? Mm -hmm. You're presenting someone as a neutral source, a concerned source, and not publishing the information that they explicitly belong to an organization aimed at preventing youth transition in one case. Or in another case, Kai Shevers has come forth and said that, you know, she spent many years as a detransitioner, which is a movement that she now compares to ex-gay movement. She worked to convince other trans people that they could change. If they thought about it hard enough and long enough, they could just not be trans anymore. And Kai Shevers was interviewed for several of these things and says that she and her other colleagues in the movement would be quoted as credible sources with no digging into that background. So you want to say the Milos of the world or the Glinners of the world are one thing. And these nice, polite cis writers who are just asking questions are another. Mm -hmm. But they are deeply connected. There is a really clear sort of <laughs> expressway or pathway or pipeline, whatever, linking those two groups. And the one group exists largely to launder the opinions of the other into mainstream discourse, which is wildly dangerous because that's exactly what happened in the UK. That's why you got, you know, nice, polite, liberal feminist JK Rowling now yeah. full on raging turf, you know? Totally. And that's one thing that I've been having such a hard time trying to explain to you know, cis people who like find some of the more like just asking questions to be not that alarming. And so I really appreciate you laying that out like that, Jude. No, like it happened. This happened years ago before he had gone quite as awful as he'd gone. But my husband like linked this article on Internet outrage from one of the worst of the guys who I won't name here because he can hear you. If you say his name in your house, he knows that that's happened. <laughs> Um, and I was just like, what are you doing? Who are you reading these days? And he's like, no, I think he has a point. People on the internet get really mad about nothing. And I just had to be like, no, it's not nothing. It's not nothing. Uh, you know, like, it's very, very easy for people to cast this scary, nebulous force of, like, cancel culture or internet outrage or, you know, people yelling at me online. I hate it when people yell at me online. I don't like it. And it happens. But it's easy to cast that threat of being made to feel somehow emotionally bad by examining your own actions and biases as a bigger threat than what's actually happening, which is that people promoting those biases are getting high 
AI advances, they are getting major platforms and they are able to focus on cancel culture because the only problem they have is that someone might at some point choose to disagree with them. You know, there is a difference between, if we're talking about internet outrage, some 16-year-old getting bullied off Tumblr for phrasing things in an awkward way that she didn't fully intend, and J.K. Rowling, who has billions of dollars, wanting to check her social media mentions herself rather than pay the social media manager she can clearly afford, mm-hmm. right? When we talk about cancel culture, it presumes that everyone is coming from an equivalent position of power, and they simply are not. And it hides the real structural inequities in play, which I'm sure you've said a million times on your podcast. I just wanted to come in and say it myself. (laughs) I mean, you are correct. Um, (laughs) You know, one thing that I was curious to hear more about is you ultimately made the decision to leave Substack. And Substack did try to keep you on. They offered you one of those lucrative pro deals. And so I'm wondering why you decided to step away. And also, I know that they, you know, have tried to lure other queer and trans writers in with those deals to keep them on the platform and what you think about that. All right. So here's the thing. I felt in that moment that I was being bought. That was the thing, is that I make an okay amount of money through my newsletter, and I like my writing on there, but there is not a reason in that conversation for you to conclude with, by the way, there might be money in this for you if you'll stop criticizing us, Mm -hmm. if the purpose is not to tamp down the criticism. They knew that for whatever reason, the attention I had generated was bad news for them and they wanted to get me on their side. And as a writer, I find it offensive to be paid more for my silence than for my work. And it sucks, you know, like later that week, there's going to be something, you know, some unexpected expense. And I'd be like, oh, damn, I could have made a quarter million bucks just to be nice about these evil people. But I don't want to be nice about them. I'm not nice. Obviously, I think the rationale is going to be, but we also publish trans writers. We also publish feminist writers. We also publish progressive writers. So why are you complaining? To me, that is, while I absolutely refuse to get into any public slap fight with any trans writer who may feel that they need to take this deal, you know, it's, you know, good for you. Mm -hmm. I think that ultimately... These are common moves for major corporations to make. And what they want is a Band-Aid. What they want is a distraction. What they want is to be able to funnel the rightful anger that marginalized readers and writers feel for them at this moment in time and to take all that anger and shift the attention and the target away from the transphobic cis management who won't stop talking about free speech and tweeting defund the thought police whenever trans people have an opinion at them. They want to shift all that away and point it at some random trans lady so that we'll all be angry at her and not at them, Mm -hmm. or she'll be angry at us and not at them. It is divide and conquer, and I refuse to play it. I don't want to be the person whose name you say in the meeting room to say that, like, yeah, well, we are the most transphobic media platform, and that's part of our brand, but look, we're paying this one trans person. I don't want to be the name they say, and I don't think the person who is the name they say is the real problem there. 
you know, I feel sadness and anger that the conversation has gotten to this point, that it's all just going to be about like, who feels safe walking away and who doesn't, you know, like, I do not want my, you know, legacy in this world to be like doing something that was kind of noble and then ultimately just degenerated into a slap fight among a bunch of trans people online. That's not what I want. And I personally would not take that money. I think that 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 is a Band-Aid. That is being used as human air freshener to sort of cover up the stink. I cannot tell anyone else what to do. I cannot tell any trans person not to live and thrive in this world because, like, to be honest, it's a hard, cold world out there. You know, within weeks of the Substack fracas, or whatever you want to call it, Medium and Mel and these places that seem to be doing well laid off tons of people. I understand why Substack is a powerful thing right now for a lot of people because it feels safe. It feels like I could get enough money that I could live on it for a while and I could have some chance at financial security. And if I get enough subscribers, I can just take them elsewhere at the end of the year. And it's I'm generating this revenue myself. So it doesn't come down to some editor liking me or, you know, my department continuing to get that grant or whatever. I understand why this is a seductive proposition. The problem is that when these platforms are completely unregulated the way they have been, and when there's no screening process, again, I'm going to say it again, from the moment Substack was founded, it has always had an editorial policy. It has always reached out by name to writers and work to recruit them. And now it's making choices about which writers are valuable enough to get advances and which writers aren't. When you make your only governing value the dollar, when your only concern is how much traffic can I generate? How many clicks can I get? How much discussion on social media can I get? Inevitably, you wind up prizing the most inflammatory voices with the least to say. Inevitably, you contribute to polarization. And inevitably, this weird fake martyr thing where it's like, I live in Brazil with my hot husband and I'm a millionaire, but sometimes a trans person has disagreed with me. And here's a 30 minute video explaining why that's the threat to the First Amendment that we all need to be concerned about today. Oh, you are a joy, Jude. You are a joy. <laughs> you know, it's it's like a sewage plant. The shit rises to the top. It really does. You know, <laughs> I was recently reading something about the founding of Substack and how it was based on this idea to to save journalism and stop the spread of misinformation. And that seems so disingenuous to me because what we're seeing is the the rapid spread of misinformation, right? Absolutely. You know that Substack is both framing itself as like the savior of journalism. And finally, great writers can get paid to do great writing. And also the way to save journalism is to completely divest yourself of any of the responsibility that an actual news outlet would have. In this case, people are literally just being handed a quarter million dollars to say whatever the fuck comes into their heads. And as we can see, there's not a lot of quality that comes out of that arrangement. It's really, really easy for people to make poorly researched arguments, to slip junk science into the mainstream as if it were fact, to rile up hatred against marginalized groups in coded or not so coded ways. I know we talked about Glinner and what the difference is between Glinner and anyone else on that platform. And this is a really clear example of just what happens when someone can do whatever they want. 
All he's doing is doxing these women. All he's doing is creeping into dating apps, trying to find whoever is trans or whoever he thinks is trans and posting their photos with text and a worldview which strongly implies, if not states, that they are predators. Stuff that could ruin their lives and that the dating app, not only trans users, but the dating app itself is contacting Substack saying, please, can you get this guy to stop doxing our users? And Substack is keeping it up. Their harassment policy isn't one. If you're not directly saying, I'm going to use this newsletter to get together a group of 12 guys to go murder this one specific person at midnight, something that's like an actual actionable threat, they don't care. And there's no way quality journalism gets done. I'm not even sure a quality op-ed could be done in that environment. Definitely not from some people. I think everybody needs an editor. <laughs> and some people need an editor more than others. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. You know, one thing that I've been thinking about as all of these conversations are unfolding is kind of like, what is the bigger picture, right? What is the bigger picture beyond just specifically Substack? Because what we're seeing is that you know, hateful, inflammatory opinions being incentivized by this model. And I'm looking and worried about, you know, how this model might be replicated in other tech startups, you know, trying to change journalism. I'm wondering, you know, what is here that we need to make sure not to take away from it? And also what our concerns are around the future of journalism as it relates to what we're seeing uh, around all of this, uh, how things around Substack are unfolding. Right. And I mean, that is the big concern is that when something is a big financial success, which this has a lot of buzz around it. I don't know that they've ever actually turned a profit yet. They're probably in that phase where a lot of startups are just getting a lot of VC cash and we don't know that the model's sustainable long term. But they are getting a lot of heat right now. And when that happens, other places start to think, well, how can we replicate that success? That is why it is important for there to be pushback now, because it is undeniably easier on the internet to get attention and profits by playing to people's worst selves. Educating people, presenting them with something that might not immediately conform to their biases, but that is important information, giving them news that may be very dry. Again, I don't want to mention anyone by name because if you say it three times, he'll show up in your mirror. <laughs> but um, there's famously an instance where a legacy magazine ran a cover story about children transitioning and it was very bad. Mm -hmm. You know, some might say the writer had an agenda, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. on that very cover in tiny, tiny type, there's a headline that says, is America prepared for the next pandemic? And the answer is that they should have you know, <laughs> maybe put a little bit more emphasis onto one of those stories. You think? <laughs> um, you think? You know, that's the thing, is that it is so much easier to get in people's minds and to generate an emotional reaction for or against with something that conforms to their prejudices, that scares them, that makes them feel like they're under attack, that makes them feel like all of their generalized free-floating despair and anxiety from living in late capitalism could actually just be alleviated if they pointed it at this one specific enemy 
You know, all of the things that demagogues do, that fearmongers do, that bigots do, those play really, really well on the internet, which is a place that is about quick, strong emotional reactions. Mm -hmm. And you can make money that way, but you also end up hosting a full-time QAnon podcast. You know, you end up accidentally fomenting the riots on the Capitol. You end up allowing a bunch of angry MRAs upset about video games to become the next Nazi party. This is perhaps a profitable thing for you, but it is ultimately corrosive. And that's why I turned down the money, is that I have a kid and I have to weigh the benefit to her of having enough money to pay for anything she wants or needs, including her education, which as a parent, that is always going to be a huge priority for me with, I am raising a child in this country, and what is it going to look like Mm -hmm. for her by the time she's 20 years old? I ultimately believe that the long-term value of creating a just or indeed even a basically livable world is more important than the short-term take the money and run philosophy. And I understand that if you're running a business, you might not feel that way, but I assure you that when you're building has been set fire to by the Nazis that you've emboldened to run around the country, you're going to think, you know, that maybe maybe Jude Doyle had sort of a point. I think you have a lot of a point, not just sort of. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, Jude, what you just said kind of really brings this conversation full circle and looks at what the real consequences of this platform and what's going on with journalism are. And so I so appreciate you for laying that out and also for taking the time today to talk about all of this while you are in the midst of so much going on online and just trying to stay afloat right now and take care of yourself. No, it's been, this has been very therapeutic to me. This is also what I did in therapy. So, you know, like that's... (laughs) Just talking to other people about it and not just yelling at the computer screen is very good. Okay, Caitlin, the cancel daddy is ready to just eviscerate everything, just cancel all the things that um, our community just wants gone. Yeah, so of course, Oliver is talking about our out-of-context cancellations, which have been submitted by our very lovely Discord users. I'm loving that community more and more every day. It's so wonderful. (laughs) So what are we canceling today? We are going to cancel top and bottom discourse. I love it. (laughs) I just, you know, it can be fun. It can be silly. But also, like, just just go have good sex. (laughs) Just go have a good time. Enjoy yourself. (laughs) You know, I saw this tweet where um, somebody's 76-year-old dad sent them a list of words they didn't understand from the book, um... Detransition Baby by Tori <laughs> Peters. I'm on page 50, by the way, and I have to keep putting it down to like process how I'm feeling about it. But uh, one of the things in there was a statement that said, you know, I don't do top. And I just started dying because that's literally my gender identity. <laughs> <laughs> someone who likes top and bottom discourse we're not canceling it for you we're just canceling it for the people who don't want to see it it's gone boom (laughs) next we have the whole idea of doing taxes and let me tell you as a freelance writer with multiple streams of income 
I could have submitted this one myself. Uh, I hate this because this is a reminder that I need to do my taxes and it's almost April. And I'm so sorry for everyone who's hearing this, who's being reminded (laughs) of the looming taxes that they have to do. It sucks. We are right there with you. So we're going to cancel the whole idea of doing taxes. I envision a world where we don't have to think about it, where we don't have to use that executive functioning and where like millionaires and billionaires have to pay a lot more in taxes than we do. So that's that's what the cancel daddy is putting out into the world. I concur. How about we cancel healthcare being tied to employment? Yeah, um, I would love that because then I would have better health care and wouldn't have had to deal with losing my health care yeah. <laughs> last year. And I'm sure, you know, I know you've been in that situation before, too. Um, Literally also last year. <laughs> oh, hate to see it. Um yeah, I mean, so I'm getting I'm getting some vibes in our Discord. I think this is the second time we've had some mm-hmm. healthcare stuff. I think that um, our community is very frustrated with the healthcare system, which is fair because it sucks. I think someone said also um, healthcare deductibles. Yes, which please, yeah, let's cancel those. <laughs> let's cancel those. Two. What's the point of premiums if we also have to pay a deductible? Like, who could say we're paying for the right to pay for our own health? care it's like okay which brain genius designed this and how much did they profit from it who could say who could say (laughs) um and then our last one is canceling round things that roll off the nightstand right when you need them this seems very specific (laughs) um i'm trying to envision (laughs) oh wait shit i just got it (laughs) oh wait is this a sex i think it's a sex joke (laughs) Oh my god, I didn't even get that either. <laughs> oh my god, our, our our community is so funny and clever. I love it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's a sex joke. If it's not, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, if it's not, things falling off your nightside table when you're trying to grab them still really frustrating and feel you. But also if it's a sex joke, nice. Nice. <laughs> So if you want to cancel something during this segment, you can join our community on Discord for only $5 a month by supporting our Patreon. And there are other uh, rewards that you can get for being a patron, which include like getting episodes early, um, monthly video chats. Our biggest supporters get a big shout out in the credits at the end, um, and they get the great power of cancellation. So if you're interested in supporting our show and getting any of those rewards, you can go to patreon.com slash cancel me daddy. Yeah. So our, our goal with that is to hopefully start earning enough to justify becoming a weekly show. So if you want even more of the cancel daddy and their lovely colleague in your ear holes, you should consider <laughs> Supporting our Patreon. Ear holes. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I can't help myself. I'm such a goofy mood. Today's show was made by me, Oliver Ashkline, and my incredible co-host, Caitlin Burns. Daniel Peterschmidt made our theme song and Eden MW designed our graphics. Our show is made possible by the incredible cancelers supporting our work like you. Especially the first person in our canceler hall of fame with the great power to cancel all of their enemies, Meg. We appreciate your support, Meg. Happy canceling!